Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We put your questions to Gary Anderson in a special podcast edition of Ask Gary. Every few weeks on Autosport.com, for those who have access to our Autosport Plus subscription content, we pose your questions to former Jordan and Stuart slash Jaguar technical director Gary Anderson. These questions can be on any topic, whether it's opinions on the latest news in F1, analysis of what's going on in racing, technical explanations, or questions even about Gary's long history in Formula One, uh, and it always sparks some uh, lively discussion. So we thought, why not do a special podcast version of Ask Gary? Questions for this can be submitted through Twitter using hashtag AskGaryF1. And we also ask for questions via Facebook and Instagram. And for fans of good old-fashioned email, just drop a line to AskGary at Autosport.com. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and appropriately enough, we do have the one and only Gary Anderson with us to answer your questions. Now, thanks for joining us, Gary. I thought we should start off by establishing your credentials, because you're not actually a million miles off hitting five decades connected to Formula One now, are you? Uh, no, not really. I, I first started in 1973 um, working as a mechanic for Bernie Eccleston, who owned Brabham at that point in time. And from there on, basically, I've been involved in motorsport of some sort um, all through the, the years. It's uh, 40, 45 years, I suppose that is now. Um, so it's a long time. It's been my, my life and my career as such. Um, and I was very lucky because at the time I joined a Formula One as a mechanic, I was very interested in the mechanical stuff coming from Ireland. You know, we used to make and do a lot ourselves, a bit like the, uh, the guys from New Zealand that sort of created McLaren in a way. You know, you had to make stuff. Um, so by getting involved in motor racing, I sort of started asking the questions about how cars, you know, why we were doing sort of certain, certain things, you know, in cars, what the setup was, what suspension meant, all that sort of stuff from from good qualified designers. And um, through the period of time, I started doing a bit of development, a bit of design work, and got the opportunity uh, to design some cars, Formula 3000 initially, um, for Reynard, and then uh, Eddie Jordan's first Formula 1 car, Jordan 191. So, you know, it's been uh, a good career. Not sure you could do that these days with uh, all the technology that's about, but uh, it's been an enjoyable career, and, you know, it's nice to still be involved to some level. 
Yeah, probably a technical director of the old school, you could say. I mean, work your way up through being a mechanic. Although a lot of the a lot of the technical directors do 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 that. Normally, more straight into engineering roles or aero roles or whatever. But it's uh, yeah, a rare thing. Technical director. So we're very fortunate to have your your insights. So let's pile on with some uh, with some questions. We've had all sorts of responses. This one from Luke E. Shaw sent in via Instagram who says, in both this season and last season, Ferrari have tailed off performance-wise just after the summer break. Is this more to do with Mercedes upping their game or Ferrari reaching the full potential of their design concept? Um, It's a very interesting question, actually, because there's lots of opinions on this. Um, I don't believe that it's Ferrari have reached the end of their design concept or their development. I think something has happened over the last few races and, um, you know, Obviously, sort of read between the lines, we've had all this stuff about the twin batteries and various things about them getting more power out of the engine. And I was one that said it. I didn't. I didn't believe that was happening or could happen. But I, I've seen such a switch in Ferrari's performance. Now, it is a bit like you know, Mercedes have got their car better. Um, they had blistering tire problems in Spa, for example. We see they don't have to the same degree now. But Ferrari, if you look at the numbers, basically, the last three races were Singapore, Russia, and Japan. Um, obviously Mercedes have dominated them and Ferrari are now 0.6 of a second behind them. If you look at the three races before that, Hungary, Spa and Monza, Ferrari dominated them and uh, Mercedes were 0.1% behind them. And that's okay, you look at those two. That's a, that's a switch of 0.7% roughly. Um, but then look further down. Red Bull, for example, in Hungary, Spa and Monza, where um, I've got the numbers just here, so we're 1.1% behind Ferrari. Um, and now Red Bull are 0.5% behind Ferrari. So Ferrari are the ones that's lost out. There's quite a few other teams that have, basically they've closed up on Ferrari, but they've stayed more or less the same percentage behind Mercedes or behind the, the leading team as such. So it just shows that there's, there's a group of those midfield teams that are doing as good a job relative to the car that's fastest. It just seems that Ferrari and, and uh, Mercedes have switched over. So I think Ferrari have lost more than Mercedes have gained. Mercedes have made their car better on a Sunday, but as far as pure performance is concerned, I think Ferrari have lost um, a reasonable amount, and a, you know, a big step really to Mercedes, but a reasonable amount to everybody. And you kind of have to look on the engine side, don't you, really? That seems to be, well, it's not entirely clear what's what's been going on there. There was a list talk about this second sensor that the FIA put on, but that, that's been there for quite a long time. I think you're going back to Monaco time, that, that was on the car. So I think that itself is a bit of a red herring, but clearly that there is something lost. We did see a few times early in the season when Mercedes really hooked it up, they did pull away a big chunk. Australia, Spain spring to mind. But the fact, as you said, with Red Bull closing up, that sort of does suggest that unusually you have had Ferrari just shuffling backwards. Yeah, I mean, as it is during the season, it was, as I keep calling it, tit for tat up until just before the summer break, up until Hungary or the race before that, whatever it was. And, and then Ferrari just seemed to get this edge. Ferrari just seemed to get this... I said they did four races, they were just bang, 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 bang. Fastest car. Now, I'm talking about fastest car. I'm not talking about race-winning car here. There's a lot more to it. And to me, as you say, that, that drop-off in Ferrari's performance from being fastest car could very easily be pointed at the power unit as opposed to the car performance. Because come Sunday, um, Ferrari's performance in the race is is not as bad. It's not Relatively, it's not as bad. Um, however, the problem with Mercedes is that whenever you see them out the front, as they were in Russia, um, and Japan as such, you know, you never know their true performance because they just, they just, they, they go to win the race. They don't go to dominate the race, really. They go to win the race, so they'll turn things down and they'll just keep it in, in abeyance, waiting for when they need to use it. So, but again, just summing up the little bit of a picture I see from my numbers, and it's all from numbers, not from, from uh, anything else. I think Ferrari have lost more than Mercedes as far as true performance is concerned. And most of that points towards the, the performance of the engine to me. Okay, the next question is uh, sent by Ash Green, uh, sent in by email. Uh, this is about the incident with Verstappen trying to be passed by Vettel, or rather Vettel trying to pass Verstappen into Spoon Curve, obviously. Verstappen had the D-rate. Um, and Ash asks, basically, do the drivers have any control over when they're harvesting, when it's boosting, etc., or is it all dealt with elsewhere? So what were the circumstances that kind of led to that that incident? And probably perhaps worth explaining exactly what D-rating is and what created that opportunity for Vettel. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the driver has an opportunity to, to alter it. Um, what would be the normal sort of, I suppose you call it, maps within the car would be for, for uh, qualifying or for lap time as such. You would have the best map to give you lap time. So in other words, 
Um, maybe accelerating off the corner uh, would be where you'd be using your electrical power to help you get up to speed, and then you, you would not use so much of that part at uh, the top end of the, at the end of the straight. Um, so you have those maps for qualifying to give you the best lap time, and then for the race, you'd have two or three different maps, and one would be to fight off the opposition behind you. Um, so you would use the you would use the, the electrical energy at the end of a straight as opposed to at the beginning of a straight just to make sure if somebody's coming to attack you and they've got DRS, you've got the best possible to f- possibility to fight and or overtake somebody else. So, But the driver at any point in time can can sort of use it. If he's, you know, you'll hear them on the radio saying to to the drivers, you know, you use, use maximum power, use whatever it is. You it's know, the overtake button, overtake button normally, yeah, isn't it? Just to give yourself button. a yeah. situational. And it'll give you that boost for a certain amount of time. Now, you know, these, the system basically is a rough thing, has got 160 horsepower available for 30 seconds. So if you take 30 seconds, it's sort of, you know, two thirds of a lap as such, um, or sorry, a third of a lap as such. Um, so you, you don't have it all the way. And you have to charge up the battery at some point in time. As we know that Renault haven't got the performance of the Ferrari engine. And is that the engine performance or is that the, it's, its charging capability through the MGUH and the MGUK braking? But basically, if you can't put the charge into the battery, then you don't have as much in that battery. It's a bit like your rechargeable battery at home. If you only leave it on for 10 minutes or your phone, if you only leave it on for 10 minutes, it'll get a certain amount in it. But if you can leave it on for an hour, it'll be fully charged. Particularly a track like Suzuka, which doesn't have that many really long, hard braking events, does it? Yeah, that, that first section up through the, the fast S's and that, basically till you get to yeah the hairpin, there is no braking as such. You just, it's just metal throttle control and a bit of, maybe a touch on the brake pedal. But um, there's no big braking manoeuvres which allow the MGUK to charge the battery up. So most of that section through there, you're getting the power through the MGUH back into the battery or as an extra power. So whenever, um, you know, I think the question is correct. Whenever um, Verstappen got to to Spoon, he thought, you know, that's not really a a likely overtaking place. So I'll use my energy, my battery energy, before I get to there um, because nobody in their right mind will come up the inside of me here. Um, But I think he got surprised by that because Vettel had that little bit extra. And then that, that becomes a bit of a closing speed as well because, you know, Vettel dived up the inside um, because he was able to travel faster because he still had, you know, electric, an extra 160 horsepower as such. Um, so although Verstappen didn't expect Vettel to come up there um, and the car was derating and wasn't using the electrical energy, it was starting to um, charge itself back up again, um, Vettel had that energy available to him. So that not only does the driver make a commitment to try to overtake, but then the closing speed is, is increased by that extra power that the Ferrari had. So... It's all about how you, you know, the strategy of using your energy and using it in the correct places to be able to fight off the chance of an overtake or overtake somebody or do lap time. And again, it's in the car on all those knobs and buttons and stuff on the steering wheel. The driver can pick whatever one the, the race engineer would tell him to use. The next question comes from James Franklin, sent in via Facebook. And this actually relates a little bit to a column you recently wrote about the, the weekend format. Uh, James Franklin says, with four hours of practice, a maximum of one hour for the fastest cars to qualify and then races as short as 76 minutes, as we had in Monza, the balance of the race weekend feels wrong. So two questions. What would the teams lose by dropping, say, FP2 and FP3? And could you sustain a second race on a Grand Prix weekend with the current tyre engine rules? Well, you've, you've already supported the idea of a, of a kind of qualifying race on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're trying to find something that's... Um that gives the teams the opportunity to develop their car uh, at a race weekend because testing's been done away with so much. Now there's a test at the beginning of the season and there's a various little tests during the, during the season. Um, uh, but yeah, something could be done with the structure of it. I don't think it's wrong to have practice sessions, but what I would have tried to have suggested that you can run FP1 and FP2, for example, should be run because there's not a big crowd comes. You know, the, the enthusiasts come because they like motorsport. But at the circuit, there's not a huge crowd there. But if FP1 and FP2 were, were, you had to have drivers in your car that hadn't raced in more than you know, two Grand Prix or something, that's a way of getting young drivers into the cars on the Friday. So forget the fact, Fernando Alonso, don't show up to Friday night, or Lewis Hamilton will see you Saturday morning. You know, so let Friday be young drivers. And each team, if you want to run, if you don't want to run a young driver, then you know you don't have to run. You just park your car in the garage. But your professional drivers and your race drivers can come on on Saturday morning. So that's a way of getting young drivers into it. 
But I think, you know, we want the spectacle of the race to be as good as possible. And the problem is, you know, the Sunday afternoon at the moment, now, lots of races are pretty good, so don't get me wrong, I'm not I'm not knocking Formula 1 here, because whenever you see a good race, it's Saturday, very good. But the problem is that most of the good racing is in the midfield somewhere. If you took away those top three teams or those top six drivers or such and, and ran a championship with the same points, you know, it would be much, much closer, much more competition, much more racing, because they're all of a sort of level playing field. So I think we need to get something that means that those quick guys just don't get to the front because of qualifying. So my proposal of running a Saturday race to to get your grid position for a Sunday is is twofold. One, it doesn't actually change too much the mileage that you would be doing over the race weekend because instead of one hour of qualifying, um, in which you'd probably do you know, 20 laps or something altogether for the guy who's, got, who's gone right through it, um, you know, you'll have a race that might be 35 laps. So it's not the end of the world extra lap, laps. Uh, tires, it's easy enough for Pirelli to supply another set or one more set or whatever. Maybe they don't have to even. Maybe you just have to take it out of the allocation because during qualifying, you know, the teams will use, you know, at least four sets of tires and maybe even more than that. So I think you could do it within the constraints that you have. Uh, I think you could have that race on Saturday. That race would be a lottery as to where you start by picking these balls out of the Pirelli tires I talked about. Um, because it gives you the opportunity to have a, a quick car passing cars through the race. It gives the driver the opportunity to be a more complete racing driver. You know, many, many drivers out there can drive a fast car and can drive it quickly. But whenever you have to use a discipline of overtaking to get to your position to finish that Saturday race, to then start Sunday race in that grid position, you have to be a little bit different. You have to be a little bit mentally stronger, I think, to do it, rather than just driving the fastest car from the front and winning. So you want to do something with the race weekend that allows the spectacle still to happen, but to be to introduce that little bit more of a, um, a risk, a gamble, a lottery, not just so black and white that the fast guys are at the front. Fast guys, big budgeted, um, huge manpower teams are at the front, and the little guy gets you know gets thrashed every weekend. You have to do something that gives that opportunity for the little guy to have, no, have a chance. And uh, the way the structure is at the moment doesn't really work and, uh, for that. Um, so something needs to be done. I'm not saying my proposal is right by any means, but it is time to sit down and think about the big picture. Obviously, one of the things you talked about there was cars coming through the field, running in traffic. One of the big talking points is running in turbulent air and how that problem can be mitigated. So this is a version of a question you've answered a few times in, in the written features, but I thought it'd be good to revisit it for the for the podcast because we quite often get uh, asked it. This is Christian Haig via Facebook saying, is there a way the cars could still achieve ground effect without disrupting the air behind the car too much to achieve closer racing? So it's the old thing of is underbody aero the answer rather than the, the sort of top body Aero with the wings and everything that we've got now. Um, yes, um, basically having a, a more powerful diffuser, a more powerful underflow. At the moment, the regulations are that the the floor is flat um, to the to a point, let's say, just at the front of the rear tire, and then you have a certain height you can go an angle you can go up at the, to the back of the car. It's a very very small diffuser, as such it's probably if you took it as a percentage of what you would want to have, it's probably ten percent. So if we if we look at that relatively, you could create a huge amount more downforce from underneath the car um, with slight alterations to the geometry of the underfloor. Um, not nothing too stupid or too dramatic. I think it still has to be policed to a certain level because it could get out of control. But it's the downforce that's created from underneath the car is not so critical to turbulence because it's basically working as a venturi, the airflow that's going underneath the car. The car. Um, you know, it's asked to expand, and by asking it to expand, it sucks the air in through the front of it, higher speed. And the higher the speed air airflow you can get over a surface, uh, the more downforce, or lift as it's called, the more downforce you'll get from that surface. So the diffuser working relative to the ground will work in, in uh, more turbulent airflow cleanly. Um, a wing surface, it's a bit like an aeroplane, you know, a wing surface creates downforce, and the aeroplane's case it creates lift. But the airflow across that surface has to be so much more refined because it's not working against anything. It's working just because of airspeed. And when the airspeed alters or the turbulence affects it, you know, we've all been in an airplane whenever it's had a bit of a, you know, bad weather or something, it's bounced around all over the place or it's fallen out of the sky, fallen down, you know, quite a few meters because it's gone into a cloud or a low pressure area. That's happened all the time in a racing car in turbulence. 
Uh, it's just that things sitting in four wheels, so you don't see it so dramatically. But if you look closely, you will see Formula One cars sort of bouncing, we call it porpoising, front of the car going up and down, or the front wing going up and down. And that's that's just a turbulence create that's doing that. Now, to us watching it, it's very hard to see, but to the driver, it feels like, you know, he's in that airplane bouncing around like you can't believe. So, really what I'm saying is, yeah, you'd have to do a reasonably good analysis. And if you wanted the car's performance to stay about the same speed as they are now, which I think is a little bit quick, but never mind, that's, that's a different problem. You would have to make sure that you, the downforce you create from the underfloor, which is quite simple and, as I say, very robust, because it's not, it's not a complicated way of creating downforce. Then you reduce it on the wings, um, so the wings aren't so effective, and you end up with a car that's got more downforce, more stable downforce from underneath it, less from the wings. And the problem is that the underfloor, the diffuser itself, is actually very efficient as well, so, You've got to make sure that you don't get the cars to be going too fast. I mean, we're doing what three hundred and sixty kilometres or something at Monza now. That's that's you know that's a hundred metres a second. That's that's pretty quick. So you don't want to get out of control, or the circuits will suddenly become you know unsafe. So you've got to keep some sort of control over top speed and corner speed to a level that keeps the safety there. But the, the, the downforce created by the underfloor will still create turbulence for the car behind it, but the car behind it will be able to manage it better because it'll be a ground effect car as well. So, you know, it's a chicken and egg thing. You uh, you try to get a car that will work in the down, in the turbulence. And as I say, that's what this, for my proposal of, of the, having the race on Saturday, um, and the car starting in traffic, that means you put the onus on the teams to build a car that's less critical to perfect airflow. The, the one thing I do wonder about that is obviously when we talk about ground effect the cars still are ground effect effects what we're really talking about is more extreme having Venturi's everywhere and obviously skirts was the the uh, the kind of peak ground effect era but with the knowledge that there is now is there a danger that underbody aero could become too elaborate and therefore would start to become more unstable because obviously when it was when skirts were in F1 it was pretty crude I mean you sort of hacked together the first McLaren uh, sort of prototype of a, of a ground effect car didn't you which was quite a a simple exercise compared to what would to follow. So is is it because I'm I'm just trying to wonder why this hasn't been done because it seems such an obvious way to go. Is it just conservatism or is there a genuine concern it wouldn't actually solve the problem as as it sounds like it might? Well, it's uh, again it's it's the reasons of keeping the circuit safe enough. Um, if you had allowed ground effect to continue from way back in the you know late seventies, early eighties, as to what it was then. Um, the, the, the lap times, these, the speeds these cars have been going at would have been phenomenal. And, you know, they've been developing twice the downforce they have now. But you, you can't do that. What I'm saying is what we have at the moment with the, with the underfloor is it is still working in ground effect. But it takes a lot to make it work. All that outwash end plates, all that, the way the barge boards work, that's all about getting the underfloor to work better. It's kind of virtual skirts, isn't it? Because you're it's trying to seal, skirt, seal yeah. the underfloor. You don't have to go to the extent of skirts. Um, but you just have to make a more powerful diffuser. And at the moment, we have the, the sides of the car outside of a certain width has to be 50 millimetres higher than the, the reference plane or the bottom of the car. The bit you see hitting the ground is basically the, the middle bit of the car. The sparks are coming off the front of the car. That's all the middle part of the car. Um, and the lower you get the front and the higher you get the rear, the more downforce you'll get out of the, the underfloor, the more of a diffuser you make it into, as long as you can seal the sides of it. So instead of having this great complicated vortex generation from barge boards and front wing end plates to try and seal the floor, allow a certain skirt system. Um, you know, you don't, it doesn't have to be elaborate, it doesn't have to run on the ground, it just has to come back down again. So the, in other words, the middle of the car's reference plane height, ground height, steps up 50 millimetres, comes back down 50 millimetres at the outboard for you know, a certain width. So you, act, you get a sort of bit of a mechanical skirt there and then do away with the barge boards, all that stuff. So you, you know, create a decent underfloor with a decent diffuser, with a decent ceiling system, but something that's not critical, that's all. Just don't make it critical and do away with all that vortex generation. Because you imagine that, that vortex that you see, when it gets in turbulence, when there's, that barge board gets in turbulence, that vortex just gives up. That means it's the underfloor, all the work you've done in the wind tunnel to get that underfloor working, doesn't work anymore. So it's no wonder these cars are slower. And, and, and it's the better cars that are worse in traffic. It's not the bad Mercedes is the classic example. Yeah, you know, you, the more you've exploited all those bits and pieces to work together, the more the more downforce you lose when it falls down. So you just have to be very, very careful as not to put yourself in a position where everything is working so critical. 
The next question, this one came in just before we recorded from Adam Novak, which is how did you get your first opportunity in Formula One? It's basically because you're a human engine hoist, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a bit like that. Um, I joined Brabham uh, basically to build Formula 3 cars. Um, and we had a workshop there for building Formula 3, Formula Atlantic, Formula 2 cars. And I was part of that group building them. And um, I, I did, I think I did quite a reasonable job. The first Formula 3 car we had for, I think it was 1973, it had been built in 1972. And they asked me to build it to see how many hours it would take to put together. Um, this is an assembly job as such uh, so they could put a price on the car so I built it in my usual way with total enthusiasm and I think I built it about 50% of the time anybody else could build it and so they, the price they put on the car was, was not as much as it should have been um, but anyway during that period I was asked if uh, I would be interested in going on the Formula 1 team and I said yeah I'd love to and they said well this is Bernie X said well um, there's a Ford DFE engine there, which at that time I think was like 140 kilograms or something. Um, could you put it in the back of that van? And uh, yes, I can put it in the back of that van. So I lifted this engine in on my knees, obviously not on my back, but in my knees and put it in the back of this transit van. Got a job in the Formula One team. And I uh, I spent that, that winter of 1972 building the first, a guy called Bob Dance and myself, building the first articulated truck, transporter, I think, in Formula One. It was an ex-40s motorhome or uh, kitchen training vehicle, and we stripped it out and made it into a racing truck, car truck. So it was a, a different. It's a different Formula One then to now, um, but the opportunity was there. And you know, if you want to do something, you have to get on and do it. Nobody's going to give it to you for nothing. So uh, whatever I was asked to do, I, I gave my best shot to try and do, and that was enough to get me through the doors. I quite like the the lift in the DFE engine. I've just been uh, judging the Allsport Williams Engineer of the Future Award with Paddy Lowe and Patrick Head, among others. So I think I might suggest that for next year. Let's have let's have the engine hoist, uh, <laughs> hoist challenge. Um, next question from Hussein via Facebook. What do you think F1 has to do to get more teams on the grid? Um, it has to be more sustainable with, with budget. I mean, we hear rumours in the last few weeks of Mercedes spending something like £300 million to win the 2017 championship, I mean, which, which which is it's well, it's just over like that's all all enshrined in the company's house yeah, account. Yeah, no, so it's I mean, astonishing spend, absolutely ridiculous. And that, that's as far as I knew, that was without uh, their engine costs as well. Yeah, that's separate. So you're talking about you know you're talking there a million pounds a day. You know, whenever you add on that engine cost, 365 days in the year, every day you're signing out a million pounds. I mean, just absolutely ridiculous. Cost per kilometre must be horrendous if you work that out because you know the cars do a certain amount of miles in the year. So, but it's it's just that spend just deters anybody because you know you look at it and you say, can I be competitive in this? And to get a sponsor, and you have to be looking at selling yourself at some level to be competitive. But to get a sponsor to to subsidise something of that that some of that money, be impossible. And also the stability of Formula One. You know, Formula One is very difficult in itself, and in, in the fact that it's it's a very hard and close competition but you need stability on it to build a team and you know we get these big changes of, of regulations and i'm never quite sure about that i i think you'd be far better to have a you know a step change every every year so you could you know your baseline doesn't really alter i think for 2019 they're doing a sensible thing as a you know a smallish i say smallish change on the front wing assembly and a little bit in the bars boards i think and a little bit in the brake ducts even that might be more than should be for a one-year step. But if you keep on doing it and heading in a direction, um, people will learn about it slowly. You're always changing the front wing and you're always changing the barge boards and you're always changing the brake ducts anyway. So it doesn't as though, it's not as though it sort of instigates huge costs. But whenever you start and you actually sort of end up with a completely different car, like the proposal for 2021 is, that's a completely different ballgame. That's a huge cost. You know, For any team, that's a massive cost. And I think... Mercedes 2017, um, they reckoned the regulation uh, change was, was about 50 million it cost them to build a new, the, to research the change in regulations, not just to build a new car because they'd be doing that anyway. Um, and you've got to try and sort of bring that back to reality. So for a new team coming in, it needs to see stability in regulations with possible small step changes, um, but a massively reduced cost to compete and, and to compete at a level. What that level of finance is, I mean, even a hundred million, you know, it sounds like nothing against three hundred million, but even a hundred million, 
it's a huge amount of money to to uh, to set up and sort of commit to spending because you're not spending it for one year you have to be committing for a five-year period at least um so you know you're talking about massive massive amount of money so the cost to compete and compete successfully has to be addressed and it has to be addressed very quickly or we'll maybe even run the risk of losing some of the teams we've got well we'll come back to the next batch of questions in a moment but first gary something that i think You'll probably give a different answer to most people out there, but I want to tell you about Team Order Racing Manager. Have you ever wanted to manage your own Formula 1 racing team, build a successful car, issue tough team orders when needed? Now you can with Team Order Racing Manager, available on Google Play and through the App Store. Give it a try, Team Order Racing Manager. Of course, you get to make all the key strategic decisions, the spending decisions, sign your drivers, do your commercial deals, work out what areas of the car you want to improve, make a few key setup decisions. And of course, Gary, these are all things that, that you have done, but it may come as a surprise to you that the, for the rest of us, it's uh, it's somewhat unusual. But there's a good chance there for uh, for me to have a have a bit of a play and see if I can pull out of the bag some of those unexpected pole positions and victories. You had a bit of a knack for doing, although I should say I did just do a race in which at one stage I had my cars both running up near the front and ended up with one failing to finish and one down in about 15th place. So I think I need a little bit more practice. Team Water Racing Manager, give it a try. Google Play in the App Store. And let's go back to some more questions for Gary Anderson for readers. Of course, Ask Gary runs on Autosport Plus every few weeks. That's our subscriber area online. And you can submit questions via Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We do shout-outs there for questions. And also, you can email askgary at autosport.com to pose your questions to Gary. Well, the next question we've got came via Instagram, and it's from the username Chandramohan Satpute, which I've done a good job of, of saying, which is, what are the tests... The FIA performs on the car during scrutineering, how many in total? And of course, they have pre-event scrutineering and then they'll do tests after the different sessions. So, so what's, what's the scrutineering process? Well, if one of the regulations in the, in the regulations is that you have to present your car legal. Um, so basically, pre-event, um, most of the checks that are done are done by the team themselves. You know, they, the FIA have their, their waybridge, uh, so we used to call it the Bridge of Doom. There's a big surface table that's got scales and stuff in it. And they've got all their templates for lots and lots of areas on the car, rear wing heights and front wing heights and front wing you know, widths and stuff. Um, and you can go there and use that equipment to make sure your car's legal. You always see that it'll be available to teams from yeah. this time till this time. And, out. And, and that's so that, you know, if, if the FIA scales are two kilograms different from your scales that you have in your factory and wherever, Brackley or Milton Keynes, it doesn't matter. The, FI, the stuff that's there set up from that time is what will be used as the legality check for your car. So it's up to the team to make sure you, your car complies with the FIA's um, kit of bits to, to measure the car. And then during the sessions, um, the cars are brought in and the FIA will randomly check some stuff. Theoretically, it's done with a computer program. It'll tell you car number 44, check front wing height, um, and car number 44 will come in randomly, the red light will go on, pull it in onto the, to the way bridge, and they'll use that same piece of kit to check the front wing height or rear wing height or whatever it be that's deemed to need to be done. At all points in time when the cars go on there, they'll be weighed. Um, so it's basically just to try and keep a... Um, to police the, the fact the car's running legally. During FP1, FP2 on the Friday, Friday's classified as a test day, so you can actually run the car with all these aero rakes and different stuff on the car, as long as it doesn't um, inflict the sort of safety criteria of the car, then you're okay to test it. Uh, even then, I, I question some of these aluminium rakes and all that stuff that's on the car. If you did have a shunt, what would happen to them? But they're there and they're accepted as being okay for that day because of testing being limited. So the, the tools are all there to check it. It's up to you to check it, and then the FIA will check it afterwards more importantly what the FIA do check during the sessions and after the sessions is the software that everything's complying with how it should run as far as the electronics are concerned the gear chains the clutches the management of the engine all that sort of stuff so they will directly check that and you have to comply with it but what you have to do as a team is supply the FIA with your software version that you're using they will theoretically check that software version before the event and then uh, if you have to do any changes to it, you need to resupply that and so on and so forth. So everything's monitored quite well um, to try and stay on top of it. But, you know, the staff, the FIA would need to to be um, able to do all that themselves would be enormous. So you have to buy into the fact that the teams um, 
sort of do the policing themselves a bit. And then, of course, the FI does spot check. So you'll see, actually, if you go onto the FI website in the events and timing information, you can see some bulletins after various sessions, what they check. So they'll say car 77 and 44, check the fuel flow or something, just a cross-section of things that you can be you can be checked on. And then, of course, they are, the other thing they do is the, the load tests and for check the flexibility, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty rigorous. Yeah, it's pretty rigorous. And as you say, it has random tests, but it comes from a software program that it doesn't know what car's coming into the pits or whatever, but it just say the next car in the pit lane, check deflection of the front wing or check this XYZ. And after the sessions, then there's also other more stringent tests will go on, like deflections of a lot of parts of the car. And if there's sort of somebody thinks, oh, that looks a bit funny, you know, the FIA, then they will they will also go and have another another bit of a route around to see if they can see anything going on. The next question is from this Arla Leone via Instagram, some tricky usernames here, which is how can F1 still be relevant for manufacturers? Developing technologies that can be applied on the road seems to be one of the main targets for them, and that's what's making Formula E more and more relevant. You know, is moving to 18-inch wheel rims enough for road relevance? Um, personally, I don't think Formula 1 should be too relevant to manufacturers on a day-to-day basis. I think it should be showing that the impossible is possible. And I think that they're doing that to a certain level. You know, they're showing that this this technology of um, harvesting energy to the level they're doing and a car running producing nigh on a thousand horsepower um, with a fuel maximum fuel flow of, you know, limit on it with a fuel flow restrictor and a maximum fuel capacity of 105 kilograms or whatever it is now. You know, that is all stuff that 20 years ago, you would have thought, you know, impossible, just not even think that we're thinking about. It. So Formula 1 is there to prove that it can be done. It's not cost-effective by any means how Formula 1 go about doing it, but at the end of the day, it's it's proved that it can be achieved to a certain level. So road car technology can can thrive from that, and uh, the challenges are, are, going, are, are very high. You know, it's, it's 18-inch... Um, rims and tyres it's more of a a way of joining the club to be honest it should have happened a long time ago in Formula 1 it's not relevant to road cars the tyres in Formula 1 car are not relevant to road tyres you know slick tyre the first thing is you get booked by the police so all the development in that direction but there there is knowledge that comes from it Um, and I think you know braking systems electronic braking systems uh, the management of the turbo with the MGUH all that stuff points a direction and, and does give road cars and manufacturers the opportunity to to understand it, to develop it at huge cost, um, but to know that it's possible. And then you just have to be able to come up with the ideas that will allow you to do it at a much reduced cost. And, and that, that's down to weight. I mean, the MGUH on a Formula One car, the whole kit probably weighs you know, three or four kilograms, turbo everything. Uh, I don't know what the top of my head, but then, you know, in a road car, it can weigh 10 kilograms and it'll, be, it'll still function. So it's just the opportunity for the challenge and that will be relative to road cars in the longer term. The next question comes from Geezer Pete via Instagram. What is the most innovative piece of technology, engine or otherwise, you have seen since the 2014 regulation changes? Of course, 2014 was when the V6 turbo hybrid power units came in. Also, there are quite a few aero changes. And of course, subsequently, we've had the 17 aero modifications as well yeah i mean aero aerodynamic development is, a, is an ongoing thing anything that travels through the, the air at speed will create forces and then it's about the teams um manipulating that airflow to get the best out of it so i, I don't look at aerodynamics as being revolutionary it happens whether you like it or whether you don't um it's just about making it work for you instead of work against you but i think since 2014 i i think the mguh is probably one of the things that I, initially, whenever it was proposed, I doubted most as to be an effective solution to a problem. But it, it's probably because I didn't really understand it. You know, MGUH, motor generator unit heat, uh, is a bit of a strange word for it. It's nothing to do with heat in reality. It's just on the hot side of the turbo. Um, so it, it's driven by the hot side of the turbo. So the fact of managing the turbo and getting a recharge from that unit to charge up your battery or extra to your battery capacity is what has made Mercedes and Ferrari and 
whatever stand out from the others. Well, that's the thing that is often forget, forgotten. You've got the limit of how much you can deploy via the MGUK, which is yeah. the electric motor effectively. But as you said there, you can actually pipe yeah. some power direct without going into the battery. If it doesn't go into the battery, that's bonus on top of your allowance, which is why it's so critical. Yes, I mean, you're only allowed a certain amount of, of, uh, of um, energy transfer from the, the battery pack to the MGUK. But the MGUH as such can have its own extension lead connecting up to the MGUK. So if you're getting your maximum 160 horsepower or whatever out of the battery pack, driving the MGUK, and you can find another 20, 30, 40 horsepower's worth of energy from the MGUH, that can go directly there. So that's the big advantage. And managing the turbo with it, again, you know, the normal way of, of managing the turbo was a wastegate. And whenever the exhaust pressure would get to a certain amount, the, the pressure in the exhaust pipe was driving the hot side of the turbo and making it turn at a certain speed. Um, and in a normal setup, whenever the exhaust pressure gets too high, um, the wastegate would blow off. And by definition, a wastegate is wasting that energy. So that's it still exists for fast reaction, but the MGU-H basically will hold the turbo back, not allow it to overspeed, and still use that exhaust gas to make the turbo work at a, at a stable RPM, which gives you then energy from the MGU-H. So you're running the turbo up to you know, 100,000 RPM or something. I think there's a limit of RPM limit of 120,000 on it. So let's say you run it up to 100,000 RPM and you can hold it stably at that RPM with the MGUH. That means you're getting energy from the MGUH because it's the electrical energy that's holding the turbo back. Um, before, all you do is run it up to that speed and you would uh, open the whisket so that the turbo wouldn't go any faster than that. So um, it's a very clever piece of kit. And for sure, it is an advantage to road cars. Whether it's called an MGUH or not, I think there's some controversy into the name of it, and it is actually on some road cars. But it's a very clever piece of kit. can give you something for nothing, basically. And it means you don't use, as I say, this definition of this wastegate, which is wasting energy. So I would say that's the thing that I was quite critical of to begin with. I didn't see how it would work. Because by definition, say MGUH, I thought it was to do with heat. I couldn't see how you could pull the heat out of, the, of that system and make anti-battery energy. But uh, it does work very well. I'd say in general that these power units are pretty phenomenal in terms of the power they're putting out. Initially, 100 kilos per race, 105 kilos. It's increased to fuel flow limits and all these things. Yeah, hugely, uh, hugely efficient and powerful engines. The next question again is about the the on-track competition. Uh, Luds Online for Instagram says, should F1 introduce a success ballast system to close the field up? Of course, we've seen success ballast effectively deployed in other championships, touring car racing in particular. It's uh, it's popular for, so if you if you win or score X number of points, you get a certain number of kilos, etc. Um, you know, it's the same old deal. I don't know why you should get um, penalised for being good at doing something. Um, it's a bit like, you know, should Usain Bolt have had to carry you know, lead lining in his, in his shoes when he was running just because he was good at it, or Mo Farrow, you know, should he have to wear a, a, you know, a, a bulletproof vest when he's doing his marathons now? Uh, people are good at things, and teams are good at things, and drivers are good at things, so I, I, I'm not really a big, a big fan of a, a performance penalty. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of making it more difficult for the good guys to do such a good job. You know, the performance ballast works in some fields, but you'll always get, that, that's the artificial bit, and you'll always get somebody saying, well, you know, I would have beat you if my car wasn't 10 kilograms heavier than yours or whatever. And weight is quite critical to these cars, and say 10 kilograms, roughly three-tenths of a second. So you don't need much to influence the weight of the car. Um, but it is a bit of a it is a bit of a, an artificial one. I think it will be pointed out as being artificial in the longer term. Formula One needs to keep itself as pure as possible, I believe, um, and that the winner is the winner and the same, and he's got the same opportunity as everybody else. Otherwise, there will always be that. Well, I would have beaten you, or he won because everybody would write about it. You know, the minute of between all your analysis based on the fact of. Lewis Hamilton's car wasn't, you know, 15 kilograms heavier than Sebastian Vettel's for whatever reason, or, you know, Max Verstappen's, then everybody would be writing about it and doing their analysis and saying, well, this would have happened, you know, the championship would have come out like this. And you don't really want that at the minute. 
yes, the guy that's winning the races has got the biggest budget and the biggest team and the you know the most commitment and a good factory and a good organisation. And but at the end of the day, you have to say, look, you know, Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel, Max Verstappen, they're pretty good drivers. They deserve to be where they are, doing what they're doing. Daniel Ricciardo, Kimi Raikkonen, Valtteri Bottas—they're all very good drivers. You know, nothing wrong with them at all, but just the fact that, uh, you know, those good guys are good. Yes, they're in the best car, but they, they have the right to be there. And we've got a question that came in quite recently. I did a, a shout out on Twitter uh, just before recording. This is from Joe Graham asks, what areas of the formula could be opened up to development by the teams that would be relatively cheap compared to engine developments? I mean, is there anything that's possible that you think could be ex- expanded that would allow cost-effective performance differentiation? I think the... You either create an A or a B championship, if I'm, get, if I'm reading this question correctly. You know, if you want to create an A and a B championship, then that's something. You know, if you're going to create a different car for for the people that aren't classified as works teams or from, you know, seventh backwards or whatever it be, um, then it becomes a different car again. And the, the question will always be as to why. Now, if you're talking about opening it up to everybody and uh, allowing teams to do more development to their car. You know, the regulations allow that. The regulations limit the areas you can work in, but to the level within those areas that you can work, it shows the fact that, you know, you can exploit it to to a maximum. There's different ways. You look at the Ferrari, you look at the Mercedes, you look at the Red Bull, the Force India, they're all quite different in a lot of little detailed areas. Um, And that's how you start your development. You you don't start, as I say very often, from a breeze block as such and carve it out. You actually start from a concept and you exploit it to its maximum. And some concepts have more room for exploitation. Um, Some concepts you just end up trying to develop and develop and develop and you just can't get anywhere. But I think one of the main things for me is the fact that if you could pull it back a bit financially, um, you would end up with a better... A better situation because at the minute you know you can you can use your you know 800,000 t- strong team of people just keep on making bets making bets making bets and they'll all gain you but instead of gaining you as they used to do you know one percent performance they might gain you point one of a percent performance now uh, even you look at that you know point zero one of a percent performance but the big teams can afford to put that on you know in our days we used to have a a sort of cost effectiveness, you know, if it's going to cost you more than £10,000 to find, you know, 0.1% performance, whatever it be, you, you didn't do it. If it was going to cost you less, you would have done it. So you have to have your criteria for that. And for the big teams, you know, it's just, it's a multiple of 10. They just, they just go ahead with it anyway. Um, so I don't think it's a room to say that you can have different, different opportunities to design better cars. I think the cars are designed to exploit the maximum they can out of the regulations right now. The regulations might have to be a little bit different and getting the cars to race in, in dirty airflow would change the concept of the car, you know, quite a lot. So I think that would be a route to go. Just make sure cars have to pass each other. And the another thing, the simple thing to do is do away with the blue flag because that immediately will mean that you're going to have to pass somebody as opposed to being, you know, pull over and park for a while while I get past you. And you see that so often. It's ridiculous that that, that still exists. I'm not saying, you know, don't don't have the blue flag, but... Once it's waved to you, you've got three laps or something, let's say, to to, um, to pull up to let the guy past you. But you don't have to do it immediately within three corners. So the, you have to think about it a bit. And another uh, late question from Damien Stack via Twitter, uh, saying if you could talk about the potential for a fighter jet canopy to replace the halo. Uh, what are the challenges of that? How easy to get in and out of the car? The weight? Is it feasible for, for wet running? Obviously, we did have... Uh, various different versions they experimented with jet fighter canopies the red bull aero screen concept was talked about as well and the halo it's an ongoing project they've made very very clear uh, that it's still being looked at so what's the possible future there yeah i mean the, the halo without doubt um isn't the, the prettiest thing in the in the pit lane um but it is there to serve a purpose um one of the things I've always been worried about is that someone gets inside the halo and you know past that middle bit at the front and comes in and then can't get back out again I think Pierre Gasly had something come in and hit him in the face, um, but it was a small piece. I, you know, I'd still worry about a front wing getting stuck in there, which is you know a fairly heavy piece of kit, um, and you know smacking you on the head, and it can't get it can't get away. 
so although I believe it has served its purpose a little bit, you know, we've seen black marks on it from from tires in uh, Spa, I believe it was, um, and also Ericsson's crash at Monza when it went upside down. Certainly good news for Sauber drivers. Certainly good news for <laughs> Sauber drivers, but you know. Uh, has it? Did it do any good in those accidents? We'll probably never ever know. There's a mark on it, but if there hadn't been anything there, there probably wouldn't have been a mark. So you know, it's one of these sort of situations that hasn't done any harm at this point in time. But without doubt, in my book, the the Red Bull deflector screen thing it would be a better solution. Um, in the fact that it would stop stuff coming in, uh, any big stuff, small stuff, whatever, um, like Felipe Massa's accident in Hungary. Uh, they had the spring came in on the face. Um, I don't believe the halo would stop that. Um, obviously, if it hit the halo, it would, but if it came in the gap, it wouldn't. Whereas the screen would stop that. Um, is the screen strong enough to to withstand a certain load level from a, a tire and a rear wheel and tire and upright assembly coming at you in the face? Well, that, well, this is the big question that in testing they found it was deflecting too much and there was a danger. Well, all, all you'd end up doing is transferring the impact to the driver's head which is a mistake and then when you have the full jet fighter canopy that's that's very springy so that creates a problem of containment and if a tire a wheel was to hit a jet fighter canopy it would rebound and then suddenly it's flying towards marshals even flying in towards the crowd which is the, the concern with that yeah the major concern is, is to be honest is the crowd you know the driver signs up to, to race in one of these cars and knows the risks but the the, the thing is you know i don't think you want to Personally, I don't think you want a canopy covering the driver completely. Could be possible. In the longer term, sports cars have, in effect, a canopy. They have a windscreen they look through, such. Um, they have rain, they have oil, they have 24-hour races, they have you know, lots of stuff. So it, it, you can get something that a racing driver can look through, see, and drive with. And Fernando Alonso is a typical example. One weekend he's in, a, he's in an open-top car, and next weekend he's in the, the, um, the Toyota sports car looking through a windscreen in a closed environment so there's no big difference for a driver to cope with one or the other so you, it can be done you know sebastian vettel's fact of driving with the screen on that he did it i think it was silverstone and feeling sick after a lap i mean i think that's a ridiculous reason for not doing it because obviously the the vision might have been obscured or whatever but that's not impossible to fix it's the philosophy of the thing that you're looking at um as far as the screen's concerned, the screen doesn't have to be right up against the driver's face. The screen could be forward by another, you know, 20 centimetres, 30 centimetres if it's deflecting too much and hitting the driver's helmet. The, the cut out of the screen could be just the same as the cut out of the cockpit, which is okay. It will deflect stuff. Um, so there's lots of ways around all the problems. Um, and all the problems can be solved, I believe. And I think the end all, there'll never be a, you know, there'll never be a catch-all solution to these problems but the 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 best solution for me would be the screen deflector because at the end of the day you know theoretically nothing can get through it yes another car landing on top of you with the halo can be still a problem but i'm sure the screen could be done in let's say in partnership with a halo um why can you not have the screen supported by what we know as a halo now you know it doesn't have to be one or the other can be a combination of both so i think as you say yeah for the fia it's an ongoing research program if i was going into it right now i would be looking at the you know the hybrid version of the two and try and you know make the make the system work uh to to be as good a catch-all situation as possible small bits and big bits and the the final question uh, from michael jones uh could a new f1 team ever do a jordan again of course, Jordan, where you were technical director, fifth in the Constructors' Championship in the first year, best finish of fourth that season, I think. So it was an impressive year. Yeah, it was an impressive year, but it's all relative, I suppose. You know, um, if you look at the numbers, you know, we we were we were pleased with what we did because at that point in time there was what we classified as the Big Four, um, and you know, if, if you the Big Four were always going to be attached Williams, McLaren, Ferrari, and, and uh, Benetton, yeah, Benetton's it was in. So to finish fifth in the Constructors' Championship was was quite a nice thing to do. Um, but we had a minimal amount of points relatively. You know, I could work out the percentages and all that stuff. But um, it was it was different, I suppose, in the fact that the, the rest of the teams were all smallish um, privateer teams like Jordan. 
But if you look at it currently, it's such a professional, expensive sport now that to come in and do it is, I would have said, now on impossible. Now, Haas have done a very good job, but Haas are actually a lot bigger than what they look like they are. You know, as a team, they look like a small team, but they get a big percentage of the car from Ferrari, and they have Delara working on the other parts of it. So they've got a big percentage of Delara workforce there, plus they've got their own workforce. So as a team, you know, they're a lot bigger than they look. Um, but Haas have come in and they've done a, a solid job. All the others that came in, the, the Manor and Caterhams and stuff, I don't think they came in with any real commitment to, to being in Formula One. They came in because it was a good idea and they could see that there's a chance that you could actually make some money out of it. Um, I think you have to come in with a very good chance you're going to lose some money. But in the longer term, you know, there is money, there is probably money to be made. It's a business investment and you have to do it well. Um, but I, you know, I look back at the Jordan days and with, you know, with a smile on my face because it was fun, but it, but that's what it was. It was like just stepping up the Formula 3000 racing into Formula 1. You could do that. Now it's so different. It's such a big, big organization, commitment financially, manpower, factories, all that stuff, equipment. You know, I, I don't see how anybody could ever imagine that you can just step in, unless they were, you know, an Audi or a Porsche or, a, you know, Hyundai or something that really wanted to get involved with it for their name and marketing. I mean, that's the big thing it's all about. It's all about marketing. Um, so the days of the, the little man coming in with a few bob in his pocket, as Eddie would say. Um, and they certainly wouldn't be able to do it producing as good-looking a car as the Jordan 191, which was... Uh, very proud of that. It was a very nice car, and you know, it, it was attractive. Um, the, the, everything went together with it well. The, the sponsorship, the green car, the Seven Up, the it, you know, even the controversy of Bertram Gashoff spraying a taxi driver with a mace, all that stuff. Yeah, that that creates that opportunity for that guy to race at Spa. I forget, I forget his name. Yeah, um, I think it's quite interesting because <laughs> the, the other day on, I was watching Sky, and David Croft said it was a, a, a Suzuka. Ralph Schumacher, somebody somebody passed Ralph Schumacher. Oh yeah, it was uh, Alonso passing Ralph Schumacher around one thirty R. It was Michael. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, you know, we we had both Schumachers during the Jordan days, and I have to say that Michael was just you know that one day, it was exceptional. That one race weekend, it was exceptional. You could see his talent. I mean, he, his talent was belief. That was the thing about it. You know, uh, all people have talent, but he believed he had talent. Um, whereas you see others, and, and his brother included Ralph. You know, Ralph's a very very good driver. But he didn't really have the belief. He just went out there and, and drove as hard as he could and looked at the stopwatch to see what was going on. Whereas um, Michael would, you know, would know that he could do it and and would go and do it. He was honest with himself, I suppose. That's the best way of putting it. Well, certainly more questions about Michael Schumacher, an ideal topic for another day, I'd, uh, I'd suggest. Well, thank you very much for your time, Gary. It's been really great to have your have your insight. And of course, I remind everyone you check Autosport Plus subscriber area for Gary's Ask Gary columns and also after each race there'll be a, a sort of longer form column uh, where Gary picks out his uh, topic of moment whatever's made him angry about the weekend or, or some other wider debate um, so yeah please check out autosport.com loads of news about Formula 1 the whole world of motorsport plus subscriber area isn't just Gary Anderson all sorts of the world's leading motorsport writers writing on uh, a wide range of topics Autosport magazine out every Thursday you sometimes uh, find some Gary content in there as well and also check out sister titles F1 Racing Magazine out monthly and motorsport.com and if you fancy a flutter please check out the Pit Stop Betting app head to the app store and, and get that uh, installed if you like uh, like a punt on Formula 1 IndyCar wide range of categories thanks very much for joining us we'll be back soon with another Auto Sport podcast Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.